Hi everyone, welcome to today's Beach Talk in Matthew 27, where I'll try to help us understand every word of God that's in the word of God in this chapter. My objective is simple. It's uh, disciples making disciples who plant churches that plant churches so that Jesus can be beautiful grassroots movement all over the world. Now today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 27 and the crucifixion of Jesus. It's very apropos that it's overcast and cold today as we talk about this. So it says, when the morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Now the Sanhedrin gave Jesus over to Pontius Pilate, the Roman appointed governor of Judea, because they did not have the authority to put him to death, so they needed to involve him. Now, the Jewish leaders had a reason to expect a favorable result when they went to Pilate. History shows us that he was a cruel, ruthless man who was completely insensitive to the moral feelings of others, so they thought, surely Pilate will help us put Jesus to death. Now, Pilate, Pilate would not be interested in the charge of blasphemy against Jesus, regarding that as a religious matter of no concern to Rome, so all the chief priests and elders essentially brought Jesus to Pilate with three false accusations. That Jesus was a revolutionary, that he incited the people to not pay their taxes, and that he claimed to be a king. Now look at verse 3. It says, Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, Now what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and he hung himself. But the chief priests took the silver pieces and said it's not lawful to put them into the treasury because they're the price of blood. And so they consulted together and brought with them uh, to the potter's field to bury the strangers in it. Therefore, that field has been called to this day the field of blood. Then it was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of him was price whom they thought the children of Israel price and they gave him for the potter's field as the Lord had directed him. Now, Judas was filled with remorse, not repentance. Even though he knew exactly what he did, Judas was uh, more sorry for the result of his sin than the sin that he committed. Now, there's a huge difference between being sorry about sin and being sorry for sin. So by throwing the money into the temple, uh, they were where only the priests were allowed to go. Uh, Judas wanted to implicate the priests in his crime. It was his way of saying, you are also guilty of what I just did. Now, the hypocrisy of the priests here was, was transparent. They didn't want to defile themselves with the price of the blood, even though it was the price that they themselves paid for Jesus's betrayal. Now, it was their unrepentant, it was this unrepentant uh, attitude that caused uh, Judas to ultimately take his own life. Now, now look at verse 11. Now, Jesus stood before the governor. The governor asked him saying, are you the king of the Jews? So Jesus said to him, it is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you. But he answered him with one, not with one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Now history shows uh, Pilate again was cruel and ruthless and unkind and contemptuous of also 
everything but raw power. Now here he seems out of character in the way that he treats Jesus because Jesus seems to have profoundly affected him. Jesus refused to say anything to Herod, so he returned to Pilate as here described. Now, when they brought him to Pilate, the Jewish leaders accused Jesus of promoting himself as a king in defiance of Caesar. Now, they wanted to make Jesus seem like a dangerous revolutionary against the Roman Empire. So Pilate asked Jesus this simple question. He said, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Pilate couldn't believe that such a strong, dignified man, as beaten and bloody as he was, would stand silent at these accusations. Now, he marveled greatly. Now, there's a time to defend yourself from accusations, uh, but those times are rare. When we rise to our own defense, we would usually be better off to keep silent and to trust God to defend us. There's a lesson here. Now look at verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing the multitude, uh, one prisoner whom they wished, and at that time they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Uh, therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to him, Who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? Now, <clears throat> he knew that he had handed him over because of envy. Now, judging there was something different and innocent about Jesus, Pilate hoped this custom of releasing a prisoner might help solve this problem. Now, in Mark, it tells us that, Barabbas, that what made Barabbas notorious, he was one of several insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. Now, we would today regard him uh, like a revolutionary terrorist. Pilate saw through the manipulative words of the religious leaders he knew their motives was not envy uh, nor any other concern. Now look at verse 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, Have nothing to do with this man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. So Pilate sat in judgment of Jesus. He failed to give the accused justice. Pilate had all the evidence he needed to do the right thing to release Jesus, but he didn't. Now, he saw the strength and the dignity of Jesus, and he knew that he was no criminal or revolutionary. He knew that it was no that there weren't any just charges that were brought against Jesus, but it was only the envy of the religious leaders, and he saw that Jesus was a man so at peace with God that he didn't answer a single word against their accusations. Now, he had already declared Jesus an innocent man earlier on. In addition to all of these, Pilate also had a technique and a, a unique and remarkable messenger, his wife's dream. Now, we can only try to figure out what she saw in the dream. Perhaps she saw Jesus, an innocent man, crowned with thorns and crucified. Maybe she saw him coming in glory with the clouds of heaven. Maybe she saw him at the great white throne of judgment and she and her husband were facing Jesus. Now she awoke late in the morning. She was disturbed by whatever this dream was. She asked where her husband was and her attendants told her that he was called away early to his business as a governor. She goes directly to him. Now the religious leaders of Jerusalem sent over a prisoner for judgment. Immediately she asked a messenger to give to go to her husband with news of her dream. So because of all this, there was a great urgency about her message to Pilate. She was bold to send it, and she implored him to simply have nothing to do with Jesus. Let him go, send him away, don't punish him even a little. 
Now, it was an influence, a warning that he tragically ignored. All of this was God's merciful message to Pilate, a merciful message that he rejected. Doesn't God give us mercy? Now, the religious leaders knew the best way to influence Pilate, not through his own judgment of Jesus, not through his wife, not through the religious leaders themselves directly. The best way to push Pilate in a certain direction was by the voice of the multitudes. Now, here was a man who knows the right thing to do and knows it by many convincing ways, yet he will do the wrong thing, a terrible thing, in obedience to the crowd instead of obedience to the commands of God. Now, look at verse 21. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Now, they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus, who's called the Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. Then the governor said, why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, let him be crucified. Now, the voice of the crowd is not always the voice of God. The mob did not answer Pilate's request for evidence or proof when he asked, what evil has he done? They only continued to shout out and cancel Jesus. They called for more than his death. They called for him to be executed by torture through crucifixion, which is what happens when the crowd tries to cancel you. They said, Barabbas, if anyone knew what it meant that Jesus died in this place, it was Barabbas. He was a terrorist and a murderer, yet he was set free while Jesus was crucified. The cross Jesus hung on was probably originally intended for Barabbas. Now, perhaps he could not hear Pilate say, which of the two of you do you, want, do you want me to release? But surely he heard the crowd shout back, Barabbas. He probably could not hear Pilate's one voice ask, what then shall we do with Christ, with Jesus who's the Christ? But he certainly heard the crowd roar in response, let him be crucified. If all Barabbas heard from his cell was this name shouted by the mob, then they said, let him be crucified. When the soldiers came to his shell, with his cell, he was surely thought it was a time for him to die a tortured death. But when the soldier said, Barabbas, you're a guilty man, but you'll be released because Jesus will die in your place. Now, Barabbas knew the meaning of the cross better than most. We wonder if he ever took it to heart, if it ever sunk in. Now, look at verse 24. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, <clears throat> but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and he washed his hands before the multitude saying, I'm innocent of the blood of this person. You see, and all the people answered, his blood be on us and our hands. Pretty heavy. Now it was out of character for Pilate to bend his will to the way of the religious leaders and certainly the crowd. He could have chosen differently. Pilate washed his hands saying, well, you know what, it's out of my control. Now, personally, I wish this Jesus no harm, but these things happen. Yet the power and responsibility of what to do with Jesus rested with him, saying, I find no fault in him, was not enough. Looking for a clever solution and releasing a prisoner at Passover was no solution. Washing his hands was meaningless. Therefore, he could not escape responsibility and is forever associated with the crime of sending Jesus to the cross, echoed through history, for all of time. Now, hidden in Pilate's attempt at self-justification is a declaration of Jesus' innocence. When he called Jesus the just person, he admitted that Jesus was an innocent man, not, not Pilate. Just because Pilate said, I am innocent, doesn't mean that he was innocent. So 
They really had no understanding of what they asked for. They didn't understand the glory of Jesus' cleansing blood and how wonderful it would be to have his blood on us and on our children. They also didn't understand the enormity of the crime of calling for the execution of the sinless Son of God. Now look at verse 26. Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered them to be crucified. So the blows came from a whip with many leather strands, each having sharp pieces of bone or metal at the ends. It reduced the back to raw flesh, and it was not unusual for a crime, uh, for a criminal to die just from the scourging even before the crucifixion. Now, scourging was a legal preliminary to every Roman execution, and only women and Roman, Roman senators or soldiers were exempt. Now, the goal of the scourging was to weaken the victim to a state just short of collapse and death. As the Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the victim's back with full force, the iron balls would cause deep contusions and the leather throngs and the sheep bones would cut into the skin and the subcutaneous tissues that we have in our body. Then as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce ribbons of bleeding flesh. Pain and blood loss generally set the stage for circulatory shock. The extent of blood loss may have been determined how long the victim would have survived. Excruciatingly painful. So the scourging with the pain and the blood loss most probably left Jesus in a sort of pre-shock state. Uh, just getting ready to actually lose his life when he was then crucified. So even before the actual crucifixion, Jesus' physical condition was at least serious and possibly critical. Now look at verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him, and they stripped him, and they put a scarlet robe on him. They, they had a twisted crown of thorns. They put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. Now when they had mocked him, they took the robe off of him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. So what exactly is happening here? Now they only needed a regular group of maybe four soldiers called a quinturian um, to carry out the execution, yet they gathered the whole garrison around him. It wasn't to prevent his escape, it was to prevent a hostile crowd from rescuing him. It wasn't to keep, uh, it wasn't to keep the disciples away. Now, everything about this was intended to humiliate Jesus. The rulers had already mocked Jesus as the Messiah. Now the Roman powers mocked him as a king. Now, how did they do that? Well, they stripped him. When a prisoner was crucified, they were often nailed to the cross naked simply to increase their humiliation. Jesus hadn't been crucified yet, but his humiliation had begun, and he was publicly stripped. They put a scarlet robe on him. Kings and rulers often wore scarlet, but the dyes to make the fabrics the color were expensive. The scarlet robe was intended as a cruel irony. Now they had a twisted crown of thorns. Kings wore crowns, but not crowns of torture. The specific thorn brushes of this region had long, sharp thorns. This was a crown that cut, pierced, and bloodied the head of Jesus as he wore it. And then he had a reed in his right hand. Kings hold scepters, but glorious, ornate scepters that symbolize their power. In their mockery of Jesus, they gave him a scepter, not a scepter, 
but a thin, weak reed. They also bowed the knee before him. Kings are honored, so they offered mocking worship to this king. They said, Hail, King of the Jews. Kings are greeted with royal titles, so in their spite, they mocked Jesus with this title. It was meant to humiliate Jesus, but also the Jews saying, this is the best king that they can bring forth. So this is a very humiliating thing. Now we might say that in contrast, Jesus says to the kings and rulers of this age that their crowns are false. Pretty heavy. Now they shifted from mockery to cruelty. They seized the scepter, took off the robe, began to hurl their spit and their fists at the head of Jesus. Now even in this, Jesus stood in the place of sinners. Man wants to be a king, yet he is a sorry kind of king. Even so, Jesus endured the mocking kind of royalty that man left to himself is capable of. Now the march to the place of the crucifixion was, was useful advertising for Rome. It warned potential troublemakers that this was their fate should they challenge Rome. They tried to make an example of them. Normally, a centurion on a horseback led the procession and a herald sharded the crime of the condemned. Now, as Jesus was led away to be crucified, he was like most victims of crucifixion, forced to carry the wood that he would hang upon. Now, the entire weight of the cross was about 300 pounds. The victim only carried the crossbar, which weighed anywhere from 75 to 125 pounds. Now, when the victim carried the crossbar, <clears throat> he was usually stripped naked and his hands were often tied to the wood. Now the upright beams of the cross were usually permanently fixed in a visible place outside of the city walls because a major road. It is likely that on many occasions Jesus passed by the very upright thing that he would hang upon. When Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me and let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, this is exactly the scene that he had in mind. Everyone knew what the cross was, an unrelenting instrument of death. The cross wasn't about religious ceremonies. It wasn't about traditions or feelings. The cross was a way to execute people. But in these 20 centuries after the death of Jesus, we've sanitized the crucifixion. Now, how would we recede if Jesus said, walk down death row daily and follow me? Or taking up your cross wasn't a journey, it was a one-way trip. There was no return ticketing. It was never a round-trip event. Now look at verse 32. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Now they had him compelled to bear his cross, and when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say the place of the skull, they gave him sour wine and mingled with gall to drink, but when he had tasted it, he would not drink. So this man was probably a visitor to Jerusalem. There was a faithful Jew to celebrate his Passover. Now visiting Jerusalem, he was far from Cyrene in North Africa, about 800 miles away. Now Simon knew little, if anything, about this Jesus. He had no desire to be associated with this man who was condemned to die as a criminal. Yet the Romans ruled and Simon was not given a choice. Him they compelled to bear his cross. Perhaps he was chosen because he was an obvious foreigner and more conspicuous in the crowd. Hard to tell. Now, wonderfully, we have reason to believe that Simon came to know what it really meant to take up one's cross and to follow Jesus. So there was a specific place outside the city walls of Jerusalem, yet still very close where people uh, were crucified at this place of the skull 
Jesus died for our sins and our salvation was accomplished. Now, Golgotha in Latin actually means Calvary. It means place of the skull. It was called this because it was the established place where criminals were crucified. As a place of cruel, humiliating death, it was outside the city walls, yet likely on a well-established road. It may also be that the hill itself had a skull-like appearance, as in the case with the site in Jerusalem known as Gordon's Calvary. It was custom to give those about to be crucified a pain-numbing and mind-numbing drink to lessen the awareness of the agony that awaited them. But Jesus refused any numbing drug. He chose to face the spiritual and physical terror with his senses awoke. Now look at verse 35. When they crucified him, <clears throat> the full depiction of the crucifixion in modern media, if, if it was ever made, it would be limited to adult audiences because of the intense horror and brutality. Now, the Bible spares us the gory descriptions of Jesus' phys physical agony, simply stating they crucified. And this is because everyone in Matthew's day was well acquainted with the terror of crucifixion, but especially because the greater aspect of Jesus' suffering was spiritual and physical. The victim's back was torn open, and he went through all of the physical suffering that was accompanying uh, the crucifixion, but then he also had all of the spiritual suffering. Now, while attached to the upright cross, each breath would cause the painful wounds on the back to scrape against the rough wood of an upright beam, and it was further aggravated, the wounds they already had. Now, driving the nail through the wrist severed the large median nerve. This stimulated nerve caused bolts of fiery pain in both arms and resulted in a claw-like grip in the victim's hands. Now, beyond the severe pain, the major effect of crucifixion inhibited normal breathing. The weight of the body pulling down on the arms and shoulders tended to lock the respiratory muscles in an, in an inhalation state, thus hindering exhalation. The lack of adequate respiration resulted in cramps and difficult breathing. To get a good breath, one would have to push against the feet and flex the elbows, pulling from the shoulders, putting the weight of the body on the feet produced more pain, and flexing the elbows twisted the hands hanging on the nails, lifting the body for a breath, also <clears throat> painfully scraped the back against the wood. Each effort to get a proper breath was agonizing, exhausting, and led to a sooner conclusion to this gory event. Now the eyes and ears and the nose of the dying helpless victim and the birds of prey would tear at these sights. Moreover, it was customary to leave the corpse on the cross to be devoured by predatory animals. Now, death from crucifixion could come from many sources. Acute shock from blood loss, being too exhausted to breathe, being dehydrated, a stress-induced heart attack, congestive heart failure, cardiac rupture, broken legs, many things pulling at one's life. Now, a Roman citizen could not be crucified except by direct order of Caesar. It was reserved for the worst criminals and the lowest classes. No wonder the Roman statesman Cicero said of crucifixion, it is a crime to bind a Roman citizen. To scourge him is an act of wickedness. To execute him is almost murder. What shall I say of crucifying him? An act so abominable, it is impossible to find any word adequately to express. The Roman historian Tacitus called crucifixion a torture fit only for slaves. 
fit only for them because they were seen as subhuman. Now, how bad was crucifixion? We get our English word excruciating from the Roman word out of the cross. It's significant to remember that Jesus did not suffer as the victim of consequences. He was in total control. Jesus said of his life in John 10, 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. It is terrible to be forced to endure such torture, but to freely choose it out of love is remarkable. Can we ever rightly doubt God's love for us again? Has he not gone to the most extreme length to demonstrate that love? Now look at verse 35. And they divided his garments, they casted lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now sitting down, they kept watch over him there. They put up his head with the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now Jesus lost even his clothing at the cross. He was nailed to the cross as a naked, humiliated man. Jesus came all the way down the ladder to accomplish our salvation. He let go of absolutely everything. His clothes becoming poor for us so that we could become completely rich in him. Yet even in all his sin, pain, agony, and injustice, God guided all things to his desired fulfillment. It may, be, it may seem that Jesus has no control over these events, yet the invisible hand of God guided all things so the specific prophecies were specifically fulfilled. Now in verse 38, Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and the other on the left, and those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and built it in three days, save yourself. You are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said he saved others himself he cannot save. If he is the King of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him, for he said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now, <clears throat> in his crucifixion, Jesus stood right in the center of sinful humanity with the mockery of the criminals. The rejection of Jesus by his people is complete. Even criminals rejected him. Now, one of these robbers repented and trusted in Jesus and one did not. In the midst of his staggering display of love, Jesus was not honored. Instead, he was blasphemed, and his enemies sneered, saying, Save yourself if you're the Son of God. Come down from the cross. Now, Charles Spurgeon wisely notes here that nothing torments a man when in pain more than mockery. Now, they asked if Jesus did what they said. They would believe him, yet it is precisely because he did not save himself that he can save others. Love kept Jesus on the cross, not nails. Jesus did greater than come down from the cross. He rose from the dead, yet they did not believe even then. Now, even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. They were many low points to Jesus's ordeal on the cross, but this is surely one of the lowest. Even among the three crucified men, Jesus was put in the lowest possible position. This was the peak of God's love for us to endure this for our salvation but it was also the summit of man's hatred for Jesus God came to earth this is what man did to him 
And verse 45, now the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness all over the land, like a cold, gloomy California afternoon <laughs> behind me here today. Now, this was approximately from 12 noon till 3 in the afternoon. This unusual darkness lasted for, for three hours or much longer. Now, we can surmise that Jesus hung on the cross for about six hours, approximately from 9 in the morning to about 3 in the afternoon. Now, the first three hours of Jesus' ordeal on the cross were in normal daylight so that all could see that it was, in fact, Jesus, Jesus on the cross and not a replacement or an imposter, as has been floated by some since his crucifixion. Now this darkness was especially remarkable because it happened during a full moon during which Passover was always held and during a full moon it is impossible that there would be natu a natural eclipse of the sun. <clears throat> this remarkable darkness over all the earth showed the agony of creation itself in the Creator's suffering. Now verse 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with the sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. <clears throat> the rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. Now, in quoting Psalm 22, Jesus declared his fulfillment of that prophecy in both its exit, in both its agony and its exaltation. Jesus had known great pain and suffering, both physical and emotional and spiritual, during his life. Yet he had never known separation from his Father. At this moment, he experienced what he had not yet ever experienced. There was a significant sense in which Jesus felt forsaken by God in this moment. <clears throat> Jesus not only endured the withdrawal of the Father's fellowship, but also the actual outpouring of the Father's wrath upon him as a substitute for our sin. Now, Paul made this clear in 2 Corinthians. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself at the cross. Now, the agony of this cry is significant. It rarely grieves man to be separated from God or to consider that he's a worthy object of God's wrath, yet this was the true agony of Jesus on the cross. At some point before he died, before the veil was torn in two, before he cried out, it is finished, an awesome spiritual transaction took place. God the Father laid upon God the Son the guilt of all of mankind. This is the heaviest moment in the history of the world. <clears throat> as horrible as the physical suffering of Jesus was, the spiritual suffering, the act of being judged for sin in our place, what, was, what Jesus really dreaded about the cross was the cup, the cup of God's righteous wrath that he trembled at drinking. On the cross, Jesus became, as it were, an enemy of God who was judged and forced to drink the cup of the Father's fury, he did it so we would not have to drink that cup. Isaiah 53 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, as our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he was borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. 
Now, as Jesus hung on the cross, his listeners misunderstood him by taking the part for the whole. He said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Not only did they get wrong what they had heard Jesus said, Eloi, not Elijah, but they also heard the one word, only one word of what he said. This was not to do the, this was not for the true follower of Jesus. True followers of Jesus don't hear one word that Jesus says. They hear every word that Jesus says. Now look at verse 50. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. Now most victims of crucifixion spent their last hours in complete exhaustion or unconsciousness before death. Jesus was not like this. Though tremendously tortured and weakened, he was conscious and able to speak right up to the moment of his death. Jesus said, it is finished which is in one word, the ancient Greek, tetelestai, which means paid in full. This was the cry of a winner because Jesus fully paid the debt of the sin we owed and finished the eternal purpose of the cross. Now, no one took Jesus' life from him. Jesus, in a manner unlike any other man, yielded up his spirit. Death had no righteous hold over the sinless Son of God. He stood in the place of us, and he became sin for us, and then he yielded up his spirit. Jesus said, I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. Now look at verse 51. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earthquake and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who'd fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those who were with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were looking on him from far away. Among those were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Mary the and the mother of the of the sons of Zebedee. Now the veil that was separated uh, the holy place was the most holy place in the temple. It was a vivid demonstration of the separation between God and us. Now notably, the veil was torn from top to bottom, and it was God who did the tearing. Nature itself was shaken by the death of the Son of God. The scene at the crucifixion of Jesus was so striking that even a hardened Roman centurion confessed that this was the Son of God. This man had supervised the death of perhaps hundreds of other people by crucifixion, but he knew that there was something absolutely unique about Jesus. Now, the only thing wrong in his verb tense, Jesus is the Son of God, the Roman centurion seemed to assume that he was no longer the Son of God. He was absolutely wrong. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, they were looking uh, from far away. Jesus not only made an impact upon hardened men like the Roman centurion, but also made an impact on these women, even women like Mary Magdalene, the formerly demon-possessed woman who followed Jesus from Galilee. So we see Jesus able to reach everyone. Look at verse 57. It says that uh, Joseph from Arimathea, who himself had become a disciple of Jesus, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. 
when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in a new tomb, which he had made out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there uh, and the other Mary sitting opposite of the tomb. So what's happening here? Well, customarily, the bodies of the crucified criminals were left on their crosses to rot or to be eaten by wild animals, but the Jews wanted no such horror displayed during the Passover season. And the Romans were known to grant the corpses of executed men to friends or relatives for proper burial. Now, Jesus followed, uh, <clears throat> Joseph followed the burial customs of that day the best he could, considering that they had very little time because the Sabbath was drawing near. Now, he came into the world from a virgin's womb, and he would come again from a virgin tomb. <laughs> Nobody had ever been set in that tomb, so that when a body came forth and the tomb was empty, there was no possible confusion as to which body uh, came forth. Now, this was the customary way to seal an expensive tomb. A rich man like the Joseph of Arimathea probably had a tomb carved into solid rock. This tomb was in a garden near the place of the crucifixion. The tomb uh, commonly would have had a small entrance and perhaps one or more compartments where bodies were laid out after being somewhat mummified with spices or ointments and linen strips. Now, customarily, the Jews left the bodies alone for a few years until they decayed down to the bones. Then the bones were placed in a small stone box known as an ossuary. So the ossuary remained in the tomb uh, with the remains of other family members. Now, the door to the tomb was specifically made of the heavy circular-shaped stone running in a groove and settled down into a channel so it could not be moved except by several strong men. Now this was done to ensure that no one would disturb the remains of what was inside. Now look at verse 62. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and try to steal him and say to the people, He's risen from the dead, so the last deception will be greater than the worst. Now, Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure as they knew how, sealing the stone and setting the guard. So now, ironically, the enemies of Jesus remembered his promise of resurrection better than his own disciples remembered it. This whole story's crazy. Their intelligence sources and informants let them know the disciples were terrified. Instead, they were afraid of the power of Jesus. It is sad that the religious leaders were afraid of the resurrection power of Jesus, but at least they believed it was true. <laughs> On Saturday morning, the chief priests and the Pharisees preached a better resurrection sermon than, than the disciples did. They were nowhere to be found. This shows that both the Jewish leaders and the Romans were all aware of the need to guard the tomb and that they all took the necessary measurements to secure it. These security measures simply gave greater testimony to the miracle of the resurrection. If Jesus' tomb was unguarded, one might suggest that, you know, some unperson or they stole the body of Jesus to be difficult to refute. Yet because the tomb was so well guarded, we can be certain his body was a stone. Now, the tomb was secured by a stone, which was a material obstacle. These stones were large and set in an inclined channel. This was a real obstacle. For sure, the stone could not be rolled away from the inside. 
The disciples, if you had enough of them, could roll away the stone, but not quietly. Besides, they would have to work together to roll it away. And this didn't seem likely at all, given that they had all scattered. Now, the tomb was secured by a seal, which was an obstacle of human authority. Now, the seal was a rope overlapping the width of the stone, covering the entrance to the tomb. On the other side of the doorway, there was a glob of wax securing the rope over the stone. You could not move the rock without breaking the seal. It was important that the guards witness the sealing because they were responsible for whatever was being sealed. Now, these Roman guards would watch carefully as the stone was sealed because they knew their careers, their jobs, perhaps their lives were on the line. So the Roman seal carried legal authority. It was more than, you know, yellow tape barricading a crime scene. To break a Roman seal was to defy Roman authority that the stone was secured by the authority of the Roman Empire. Now, the tomb was secured by a guard, which was an obstacle of human strength. A typical Roman guard had four soldiers, two watched while the others rested. This guard may have had more. This soldier would be fully equipped with a sword, a shield, a spear, a dagger. We should also remember that these were Roman soldiers. They didn't care about Jesus or Jewish laws or rituals. They were called to secure the tomb of a criminal. To them, the only sacred thing at the tomb was the Roman seal, not the contents, Jesus. Because if that were broken, their careers were ruined. They might, have exec they might be executed themselves. Soldiers cold-blooded enough to gamble over a dying man's clothes were not the kind of men to be tricked by trembling disciples or would be jeopardized uh, their own lives by losing their posts. So material obstacles don't stand before Jesus. Human authority doesn't stand before Jesus. Human strength doesn't stand before Jesus. There's some lessons here. We've had a very long beach talk today. 